says the blessings of the king on it. We are in Matthew chapter 5. It's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which is commonly known as the Beatitudes. And I thought, oh, this would be easy. I preached the Beatitudes uh, here once before, back in 1997, and called it the Attitudes of Grace. And I said, I'll just look up what I said last time. And I even remember to back those sermons up off of uh, about a five generations ago Macintosh. And they are very carefully stored on a Macintosh floppy disk, which I have no way to access uh, today. So, sometimes technology just moves on past us. The, uh, but this is from Matthew 5. This is familiar words very much like the song uh, we just heard and this is one of those passages that's easy familiar simple until you really get into it and then it kind of upsets the apple cart so let's turn to Matthew chapter 5 we're going to read the first 12 verses you can read along in the outline you can turn in your bibles you can power up your devices say uh more and more, uh, that's the way it's going. But in all of it, it is God's word. So please listen carefully. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, as always, for giving us the scriptures and for making us your people. You have brought us again to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son Jesus. And this is another one of those texts that sounds simple but is actually profound. It sounds easy but it's unbelievably difficult. It sounds like something we can do in our own strength but is impossible apart from Jesus. So by your spirit open this gospel to us. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to need Jesus. And as always for this we need your grace. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, if Jesus were here, I think he would do things differently. You know, that saying, what would Jesus do? Makes us stop and think about how Jesus would behave in our situation. Well, I've been thinking about that a lot this week. And with the Super Bowl coming up and all, 
I thought if Jesus was in charge of the Super Bowl, he would do things a lot differently. So I've come up with a list of the top 12 things Jesus would do at the Super Bowl, 12 being one for each of the apostles. So number 12, what Jesus would do at the Super Bowl is I think he would throw the money changers out of the concession stands. That's the first thing. Number 11, he would miraculously provide front row parking for everyone. Number 10, Jesus would institute a new ticket policy, whosoever will may come. Number 9, there'd be a grace-oriented pep talk in the locker room. Number 8, he would encourage each team not to give offense to the other. Number 7, my personal favorite, he would command the waves. Those of you who didn't get that can ask the people who were laughing. Number six, he would cancel all penalties for players who believe in him. Number five, he would feed the crowd with only five hot dogs and two bags of peanuts. Number four, Jesus would discourage any Hail Mary passes. Number three, I think he would clothe the cheerleaders. Number uh, two, he would promote third down conversions. And the number one thing I think that Jesus would do at the Super Bowl, never before seen in the NFL, neither team would score any points. After all, God humbles the proud. Okay, I'll admit it's a little goofy to think about what Jesus would do at the Super Bowl, but it is true that Jesus had a way of thinking about things, thinking about life, thinking about the things that we think about very differently than how we would usually think about those things. The New Testament tells us all about the things that Jesus taught his followers as he tried to change their way of thinking to get them to think from God's perspective rather from their more limited human perspective. And we're exploring his life and teachings uh, in the series on the Gospel of Matthew, which I've entitled, The King and His Kingdom. And our passage today begins the first section of what are five major talks that Jesus gave to his followers in the book of Matthew. And today we begin our study of the Sermon on the Mount, a name that was uh, given to these three chapters, Matthew 5 through 7, by St. Augustine and has been called that ever since. And the Sermon on the Mount is important because it tells us how things work in God's kingdom. It's, you might say, an instruction manual for those who want to follow Jesus and pattern their life after his life, after his teaching, after his thinking. And in order to understand what has often been called the greatest sermon in history, you first have to know something about the bigger picture. In other words, you have to know that Jesus' words and Jesus' deeds are inseparable. Jesus' words and deeds are inseparable. First of all, let's go back to Matthew 4, verse 23. It is a summary statement of Jesus' earthly ministry. It says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, 
and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. One way to restate that verse would be to say that Jesus made it his ministry to preach the coming of the kingdom, teach the way of the kingdom, and to demonstrate the power of the kingdom by healing the sick. Preaching, teaching, and healing. Now if you jump all the way to Matthew 9, probably easier to look in the bulletin insert because it's right there. Almost verbatim, we find the same summary. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And then when we look to see what is sandwiched in between these two summary statements, these two descriptions of Jesus' ministry, what we see are two major sections. Matthew 5 through 7, collection of Jesus' teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. And then Matthew uh, chapters 8 and 9, a collection of stories mainly about his healing ministry. So what it appears that we have is a five-chapter unit designed by Matthew to present us first with some typical teaching of the Lord concerning the way of the kingdom, and then second with some typical healings and miracles to demonstrate the power of the kingdom. And the value of seeing this is that it warns us against treating any little piece of this in isolation. For example, one thing we can say right off the bat is you can't have the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount without the Jesus who, claimed, uh, who cleansed the leper and healed the centurion's servant and stilled the storm and cast out the demons. The writer who gives us the one gives us the other. And it's both arbitrary and unwise to do what a lot of people try to do today, say they admire the ethical teacher of the Sermon on the Mount, but they don't want to get involved with that spooky supernatural person who still storms and casts out demons. For some have uh, maybe the opposite temptation. They have this uh, charismatic fascination with the miracles of Jesus. But when it comes to reckoning with the one who said, don't call your brother a fool, don't lust, don't get divorced, don't swear, don't return evil for evil, love your enemy, well, they like the miracle worker who heals their diseases, but this sort of radical intruder into their personal life, they're not so interested in him. And Matthew's point is that the Lord who teaches like this in the Sermon on the Mount is the same Lord who calls us to follow him through life and to depend on his power. His personal work and power are inseparable from his teaching. And we will see that in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, we'll see that uh, very clearly uh, right here in the Beatitudes. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, and starting at verse 1. The first thing we see is Jesus is teaching his disciples. His disciples. That's the first blank uh, there in your outline. The last verse of Matthew 4 tells us that due to Jesus' miraculous healings, Matthew 4, verse 25, great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So the whole area, people were coming from all over to see Jesus. 
And if you go to Israel and visit the traditional site where the Sermon on the Mount is thought to have taken place on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, the guides will always take pains to tell you that the area forms sort of a natural amphitheater where hundreds if not thousands of people can hear Jesus preach without having to have his voice amplified. However, Matthew is making it clear that the target audience is not the crowds. It's not the masses fascinated by his healings, but rather it's his disciples. Look with me at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, it appears this is the first opportunity to give serious, concentrated instruction to his disciples. And the thrust of the Sermon on the Mount has to be determined by the audience that's being addressed. That primary audience is his disciples. And because of this audience, his followers, I'm suggesting Jesus isn't telling people in general how to behave. He's not offering a universal ethic applicable to all people and all religions. He is specifically talking to his committed followers how to live lives that are blessed by God. Now the audience is probably, you could imagine, two concentric circles and probably more like half circles in front of him. Uh, the inner circle would be the disciples. This isn't just the twelve, but the whole group of disciples that were following him. And then the outer circle of the crowds. All the people that are just fascinated by this person. And it says in verses 1 and 2 that he taught his disciples. But if you look at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the end of chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, we read, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So it's clear that the crowds are listening in. And Jesus wants them to listen in, even though the sermon is primarily addressed to his professing disciples. Now, I need to mention here, this is somewhat how our services are set up here at Potomac Hills. The preaching of the word is primarily prepared to feed and strengthen and inspire the worship and life of God's people. But more and more, we pray that there will be the curious, the onlookers, the skeptics, the searchers, the doubters who come to Potomac Hills the way the crowds gathered in behind the disciples. And we believe that spirit-led, authoritative preaching of the Word of God has a peculiar power to awaken unbelievers to the truth and beauty of Jesus, even if it's addressed primarily to his disciples. So I would urge you to feel free to invite anyone and everyone to come uh, to our Sunday service here at Potomac Hills because it's precisely the things that our Lord has to say to us that can awaken the desire in others to come to Christ. So the sermon begins with the disciples gathered at the feet of Jesus and with the crowds listening in. And how will the Lord begin? Well, he begins by pronouncing a certain kind of person to be fortunate. We call these pronouncements the Beatitudes 
comes from the Latin word for blessed. And each beatitude begins with a character quality and ends with a promised blessing. So this morning I'm going to take those two groups, character qualities, promised blessing, and I'm going to divide them. So we're going to start, verse 3, with the present characteristics of disciples. Present characteristics of disciples. We see those very quickly starting in uh, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. (coughs) Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So Jesus' message about the kingdom (coughs) uh, begins with the characteristics of the kingdom's citizens. And there are eight phrases that describe the kind of people who belong to God's kingdom. There are eight phrases that describe us. And the key point about the people that Jesus is describing is these are not eight separate and distinct categories of disciples, some of whom are poor in spirit and others who mourn and maybe a few who are meek. It's not that. Nor is he describing some sort of spiritual elite who are head and shoulders above uh, the common uh, Christian. The Beatitudes are Christ's description of what every Christian ought to be like. (coughs) Each of these qualities is supposed to characterize each of his followers. So there's eight Beatitudes. could say there's eight beatitudes that are worded very similarly. Verse 11 can be viewed as the ninth one, but it's really an expansion of verse 10. And it's worded differently. It says, blessed are you. None of the others say that. So it's probably an expansion of verse 10, which says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. The reviling in verse 11 is a specific instance of the persecution in verse 10. However, once you look at them, you discover the characteristics that Jesus describes are surprising. I mean, if you think about it, you think the citizens of God's kingdom would be the best and the brightest, the most noble, the most worthy. We'd hope they're the most beautiful, certainly the strongest and the bravest. That's not what Jesus says, is it? What does he say? We're going to go through these quickly. (coughs) But enough so you get the gist of his message. He starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessing comes to those who recognize their spiritual poverty. And that can only be cured by God's riches in Christ. To be poor in spirit 
as Jesus described, is to sense in yourself this destitute condition that we're born into as sinners and that we remain in without Jesus. <coughs> I'm starting to melt up here. So when this destitute condition begins to sink in, hopefully we turn away from our sin. We turn to God for salvation and forgiveness. We inherit the kingdom of heaven. We become children of God by faith in Christ as our Lord and Savior, which we see in John 1.12. When this occurs, we're adopted into God's family. We're made to be co-heirs with Christ, Ephesians 3 made possible by the riches of God's grace, Ephesians 2, result in being made partakers of Christ's inheritance, Ephesians 1. <coughs> the personal embrace of these truths, to be poor in spirit, produces blessing. We see blessed are those who mourn. This is mourning over loss. It's not talking about grief. It is talking about sorrow. He's talking about godly sorrow, primarily over sin. Blessing comes to those who seek comfort from God in times of sorrow. He says, blessed are those who mourn, they'll be comforted. Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions so we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In other words, pain and suffering and sorrow in our lives should drive us to God. And then the comfort that we get from Him actually equips us to become better comforters of others in their times of trouble. And this kind of selfless ministry, along with joy gained from our own experience of being comforted, produces blessing. Third, we read, blessed are the meek. Blessing comes to those who serve others and respond even to cruel treatment with gentleness. So what does Jesus mean by this? Meekness, I think, is best referred to as strength under control. A meek person is not a weak person. A meek person is one who can maintain self-control while serving others even if they unjustly criticize or harshly attack him. Jesus himself is described in Matthew 11 as gentle and humble in heart, one of the very few places in the scriptures where he describes himself. And of course, the ultimate display of meekness, of self-control, of strength under control, is his endurance of the cross, where he sacrificed his life in place of ours for the purpose of rescuing us from the penalty of sin and bringing us back to God, 1 Peter 3. And this focus, returning lost sheep to the Father, that's the joy that's set before him, which fueled his being able to endure the cross, as we read in Hebrews 12, 2. So Jesus finds his joy in fulfilling the will of God by serving others with meekness. 
Then we see blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessing comes to those who pursue satisfaction in God. True blessing can only be found in God himself. The words hunger and thirst describe the realization of need. If someone says, I'm hungry, he means he senses some pain in his stomach, some emptiness. He recognizes he needs food. Now, to be honest, we often say that when it's not true. Someone says, I'm thirsty. Perhaps she means that her throat and mouth need refreshment. That is, she recognizes her need for water. But when a sinner hungers and thirsts for God, it's a reflection of the work of the Holy Spirit awakening him or her to the realization of their own sinfulness and need for a Savior without which they will perish eternally. It creates an awareness of God's demand for holiness and righteousness, which can only be satisfied in Christ. Paul tells us the same in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he, God the Father, made him God the Son to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Christ now offers his perfect righteousness to those who acknowledge their need of it, who hunger and thirst for it, and who receive it by faith. So in God, the saved sinner is satisfied. Then we come to blessed are the merciful. Blessing comes to those who have mercy because they recognize their own need for mercy. Mercy is the attribute of God where he withholds from us the horrendous punishment that our sin deserves. Again, the Apostle Paul described God as being rich in mercy in Ephesians 2. In other words, the most magnificent display of mercy in all of history is the cross of Christ because there God took the sins of his rebellious creatures and imputed them or credited them to his son and judged him for our sin. Another way of applying, applying the truth of this verse is to remember all actions have consequences. And those who make it a habit of life to spread the mercy of God to others because they themselves have received mercy from God will reap the benefit of having others show mercy to them. Then we come to blessed are the pure in heart. Blessing comes to those who have integrity, integrity of heart. However, if you know the scriptures, you know Jeremiah, uh, the prophet, describes the human heart as anything but pure. He wrote in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So which is the truth? The answer is both. Jeremiah is describing the human heart as it is naturally without God bound in sin. Jesus is describing the heart that's under the control of the Holy Spirit has experienced forgiveness because of faith in Christ. And Hebrews 10 compels believers in Christ to draw near to God in worship with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, pure in heart. Then we have blessed are the peacemakers. Blessing comes to those who seek peace in their conflicts. Why does Jesus call believers peacemakers. Again, I think Paul answers the first part 
of that question in Romans 5. He says, therefore, we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, peace with God is a prerequisite to other evidences of peace, like peace with others. Now, peace is not always true in our everyday experience with people. And sometimes Christians experience conflict, and sometimes even as a direct result of their faith, even if they themselves seek peace. And therefore Jesus encourages us, John 16, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And the believer understands that real peace is found only in Jesus, not in the ever-changing circumstances of life. However, this peace, inner peace, with Jesus produces an outward peace that impacts how we handle our circumstances, how we handle relationships with others, how we even deal with other believers. And then we get to blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessing comes to those who love Christ more than they care about being loved by others. To be persecuted means to be constantly harassed or treated poorly. And of course, that can be taken to great degrees. In relationship to being a Christian, it means to endure this kind of treatment uh, from the world simply because you're a Christian, because of your faith. In other words, Jesus warned his followers because the world didn't accept him but turned away from him, his followers shouldn't expect better treatment from the world. It says that in John 15. The Apostle Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And for that reason, Christians who are serious about living out their faith should not expect fair treatment from an ungodly world. If you're a believer, Jesus is warning you, the world's not going to treat you fairly. Don't be surprised. But we have to be careful. It's not talking about followers of Christ suffering because they're sinful. Or because they're disobedient. It's specifically talking about being attacked because you live a righteous life. And then Matthew gives us a more specific example in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Blessing comes to those who are ridiculed because of their faith in Christ. How can Jesus expect anyone to be happy while being insulted by those who hate them? The reason is that Jesus promises essentially to be extra close to those who are being assaulted physically or verbally for being a Christian. I think that's what Peter meant when he wrote in 1 Peter 4, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and if God rests upon you. You have to note, because these verses are often misinterpreted. So you have to note, Jesus isn't describing anyone's economic condition 
or their social condition or their psychological status. He's talking about their spiritual life, their spiritual condition, their spiritual status. There's no question that Jesus had great compassion on the poor. He spent a vast majority of his time with the disadvantaged. He encouraged his followers to feed the hungry and clothe the naked. But that's not the point of his teaching here. The poor and hungry are not primarily those living in poverty. The mourners are not primarily those suffering from grief or loss or misfortune. The persecuted are not primarily identified with minorities, whether it's ethnic groups or homosexuals or women who've hit the glass ceiling. In this text, the poor are the poor in spirit. The hungry are those who are hungry for righteousness. The sorrowful are those who are sorry for sin. And the persecuted are those who are rejected because of their faith in Jesus. But Jesus isn't just talking about life in the present, because most of the Beatitudes end with a description of future rewards for disciples. Future rewards for disciples. We'll look at those. It says, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied. They shall receive mercy. They shall see God. They shall be called sons of God, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you can see that the eight Beatitudes of verses 3 through 10 are a unit, particularly when you look at the first one and the last one, the first and the eighth. Notice the promise of the first Beatitude in verse 3, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the promise of the eighth beatitude in verse 10 for theirs is the kingdom of heaven they have the identical promise for theirs is the kingdom of heaven but the other six beatitudes that are sandwiched between these two are different look at those they all say shall not to worry I have three more <clears throat> The other six Beatitudes say, verse 4, they shall be comforted. Verse 5, they shall inherit the earth. Verse 6, they shall be satisfied. Verse 7, they shall obtain mercy. Verse 8, they shall see God. Verse 9, they shall be called the sons of God. All of these promises are for the future. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. But the promise of the first and last one seems to relate to the present. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what's the meaning of this pattern? Well, I think there's two implications. First, by sandwiching in uh, six future promises in between two present assurances, he's telling them that the disciples already have the kingdom of heaven. I think Jesus means to tell us that these six promises are the blessings of the kingdom. These six things are what you can count on when you're part of God's kingdom. This is what the kingdom brings. Comfort, inheritance, satisfied righteousness, mercy, a vision of God, and the awesome title, Sons of God. You don't get to pick and choose. You don't have to pick and choose. They all belong to the kingdom. That's the first thing I see when Jesus begins and ends with the assurance, theirs is the kingdom of heaven with these promises sandwiched in between. 
The second implication comes from the fact that the first and last one are present tense. The ones in the middle are future. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted. I think this is telling us that in some sense, the kingdom of heaven is present with his disciples right now. But that the full blessings of the kingdom has to wait for the age to come. That Jesus has brought the kingdom of heaven to earth in his power and fellowship. We can enjoy it here and now. But the full experience of the kingdom, we have to wait for the age to come. So instead of taking a lot of time to look at all the blessings individually, I'm going to take one and go a little bit in depth with that one, hopefully showing what this should look like and feel like in our lives. And the one we're going to look at more closely is verse 7, which promises they shall obtain mercy. Now later on in Matthew 18, which we're not going to get to for a while, there's the parable of the unforgiving servant. And the key verse in that parable is Matthew 18.33, which says, And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? It's the king talking to his wicked servant. And Jesus is teaching that we don't merely wait for the age to come to receive mercy. It has come in Jesus himself. And we taste it here and now in the forgiveness of sins and the blessings of this life. And the point is the kingdom of heaven is both present and future, already and not yet. And we get uh, foretastes of the reign of God now, but we're going to experience so much more in the future. And I think that's why the beginning and end verse tell us that there is the kingdom of heaven but the other verses are still in the future. It's a both-and situation. And this is one of the most important things you can learn about the Christian faith. Because without this insight of present and future, the Sermon on the Mount is hard to understand. What would you make of this verse without realizing it's talking about both now and then? Present and future, already not yet. Because this verse says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Does this mean that God withholds his mercy until some future day of reckoning and waits to see if we're merciful and we have to earn his mercy? It kind of sounds that way. But if you know the gospel of the kingdom, going back to that opening verse in Matthew 4, he went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction among the people. And then if we jump all the way to near the end of the book in Matthew 24, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed. If you know the power of the kingdom is already present, and yet it is still future, Matthew 24 then you know that our becoming merciful right now is still a work of God's mercy. That's the point of that parable of the king and his wicked servant in Matthew 18 when the king said, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? God's prior mercy enables us to be merciful because the mercy of the kingdom has already come in Jesus. 
God's not just waiting as a judge at the end of the age to see whether or not we're able to earn his mercy because we've shown a lot of mercy now. He's not waiting. He's casting the net of his mercy out into the sea of the world and dragging people into life and hope and joy and mercy. He tells us that in Matthew 13 in another one of his parables where he says the kingdom of heaven is like a net that is thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And of course, we read that in John chapter 6 where he tells us no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then again, he says, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. The mercy of the kingdom is in the world right now, drawing people to Christ. The mercy of the kingdom is opening people's eyes to Christ. Remember what Jesus said to Peter. Peter had his great confession in Matthew 16, and he confessed him to be the Messiah, the Lord, the Savior of the world. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. God's not waiting to see if Peter will recognize Jesus as the Messiah. He went ahead and opened his eyes. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Simon. God has. You did not choose him first. He chose you, John 15, 16. You did not come to him first. He drew you in, John 6, 44. You did not recognize Christ first. God, open your eyes, Matthew 16. All of this is mercy, mercy, mercy. As Paul writes in Romans 9, it depends not on human will or on exertion, but on God who has mercy. You need to get a hold of this, to grasp this, to internalize this, make it part of your being. There are many passages of Scripture that teach that God will show mercy on us in the future if we live mercifully now. And there's many other passage, passages of Scripture that teach that God has already shown us mercy, enabling us to live mercifully now. And they're not inconsistent. It's the very fabric of biblical life. We're born again by the mercy of God. We're sanctified by the mercy of God. When we get to the judgment seat of God, he's going to say, you know, you're still a sinner. But I see in your life the distinguishing fruit of my son's mercy. And your mercy on others is the evidence of his mercy in you. And for his sake, not because you've earned it, but for his sake, I will show you mercy again. Come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. And unless you see the Beatitudes as part of this biblical fabric, you won't understand them for what they really are. They're an announcement of how fortunate people are who already possess the power of the kingdom. You might say, blessed, blessed, fortunate are you who have this kingdom power at work within you, for you will inherit the kingdom with all of its infinite pleasures forever and ever. The Beatitudes are announcements. The people like this are very blessed, very fortunate. But that's not all. The Beatitudes are an implicit invitation to become this kind of person. The disciples sit at Jesus' feet and they hear his words as congratulations. How fortunate you are, my brothers. How fortunate you are uh, to be chosen of God, my sisters. How blessed to have your eyes open, to be drawn to the Savior, to be 
poor and mourning and meek and hungry and merciful and pure and peaceable. Rejoice. Give thanks that you're that kind of person for it's not your own doing. It's the reign of God in your life. So the disciples hear the Beatitudes as work of uh, words of a celebration about the work of God in their life. But it's nothing we can take any pride in. We didn't do this work. Jesus did. If we took pride in it, we'd ruin it. And Jesus ends these Beatitudes by telling us the good news to rejoice and be glad. The good news is we're going to be rejected. Amen. Rejected by the world. Jesus tells us they will revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. And for that you're blessed. It's not what the world says. We all know what the world says. You can just look around. Turn on the TV. There's going to be a whole ton of commercials uh, this evening explaining the world's view on this. And those commercials are going to say, Blessed are the strong, for they shall rule the earth. And blessed are the mighty, for they shall rise to power. And blessed are the rich, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are the influential, because they'll be favored. And blessed are the popular, because they'll be loved. And blessed are the gifted, because they'll be followed. And blessed are the beautiful, because they'll be admired. And we're going to get that in a major dose this evening. But that's not what Jesus promises, is it? It's nothing like that at all. His promises go to rejects. He says the poor in spirit, your beggars in God's soup kitchen. He says those who mourn over sin. It's like Sinners Anonymous. That's what we could call our church, Sinners Anonymous. We could all have the introduction, Hi, my name's Dave, I'm a big sinner. You've been here before. He mentions the meek. I try to think of an analogy. What would describe meek? And I like Max Lucado. It's a great storyteller. He says, imagine pawn shop pianos played by Van Cliburn, one of the greatest pianists ever. And he's so good, no one notices the missing keys. So those who are hungry and thirsty those who are famished orphans who know the difference between a TV dinner and a Thanksgiving feast. He talks about the merciful in such terms as you're the winner of a million dollar lottery and you share the prize with your enemies. About the pure in heart physicians who love lepers and escape infection. And about peacemakers who are architects who build bridges with wood from a Roman cross. And about the persecuted, those who manage to keep an eye on heaven while walking through hell on earth. Why? Well, here's the startling truth. God wants rejects for his family. He wants rejects who see their failure and run to him for help. To the spiritually bankrupt, God opens the door of the kingdom and says, come right in, this place was made for you. And in giving this simple truth, Jesus has shown us the way of salvation. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they'll be saved. But cursed are the proud, for they'll be condemned. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
That's the first and fundamental quality of the spiritual life. This is where discipleship begins. This is the key that unlocks the door of heaven. Do you want to be a disciple in 2013? Learn what it means to be poor in spirit. One of my favorite hymns is Rock of Ages by Augustus Toplady. It's a great name. And I think he expresses this truth of the Beatitudes in that hymn. He wrote this verse, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless fly to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. The Beatitudes are asking you to say that. The Beatitudes are asking you to sing that. Can you sing it with joy? I hope so, because then you are blessed. Then you are blessed. Think about that. You need to pray.